It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Welcome back to Live PD, Madison Cawthorn edition. Just when you get within a month of the election, you think, okay, this guy's going to skate all the way until May 17th. He manages to make news twice in one day. It's insane. And the conspiracy theories about him at the airport are also like, yeah, that seems insane too. Or is it true? You don't know. Yeah. So some of the theories are. Well, first of all, we should back up. On Tuesday, Madison Cawthorn was flying out of Charlotte and he was cited by the CMPD for having a gun going through TSA again. Mm -hmm. A loaded gun at that. That's right. Last time he did this, it was in February 2021 at the Asheville Airport. Now he's at the Charlotte Airport. So the theory is he did this intentionally yesterday to distract from the other story about him. Which is that maybe he was involved in some insider trading deal pertaining to some coin or something. Yeah, I think meme coin. Is that right? I have no idea what this is. There's some allegations in the Washington Examiner that he was involved in some insider trading. So he decides the theory is load up the pistol and then go to the Charlotte airport. See if you could get it on an airplane. There's also folks talking about how he did this intentionally because it kind of works up his base and gets the left really worked up about him again. And it's just more attention, sort of the, if they're taught any press is good press sort of yeah. consideration. And, and maybe looking at that Republican primary voter, they're going to be pro second amendment and absolute rights when it comes to gun rights. And maybe you can have a loaded gun on a plane. I don't know, but maybe he's appealing to that. Whatever it is, it just feels like such a mess. When I saw the photograph yesterday, you and I were talking about it. Someone took a photograph of him, and he looked not well. And you have to wonder, like, what is going on with this young man? There seems to be something that just is not clicking. And this is not a political statement. I'm just saying, like, every single week, Sky... This guy is doing something stupid. There's also the Tom Tillis of it all. Yeah. The Tillis-affiliated pack went in pretty hard this week with an ad calling Congressman Cawthorn a liar. He also asked for an investigation into this insider trading allegation, and he endorsed Congressman Cawthorn's opponent, Chuck Edwards. Yeah. There was some other news in North Carolina politics this week. So we have been watching and covering for y'all the Leandro case. And there was some news in the Leandro case this week. The new appointed judge, Judge Robinson, had taken a look at all of the party's new proposed plans with the budget in mind to see how much they needed to appropriate for funding the Leandro plan. So he came out with that number on Tuesday and it's $785 million. So does that mean he's telling the General Assembly when they come back in the short session to give the school districts that much money to remedy or help remedy 
this Leandro lawsuit? So what's interesting about this is that former Judge Lee, who handled the case before, he handled it from 2016 to 2022, he had said that our state finance departments needed to get that money out to agencies. So it wasn't a direct ask of the General Assembly. However, Judge Robinson said, hey, the Court of Appeals already struck down that provision saying that the appropriations come from the General Assembly, so I'm not even going to include that in this order. So he rewrote the order with the new money and did not include that directive. However, the case now goes back to the Supreme Court. Okay. Back to political news. Big announcement this week in a congressional district out east. This is a seat that's currently held by retiring Congressman G.K. Butterfield. He made an announcement this week. He endorsed now State Senator Don Davis to be his replacement. Don Davis is a very moderate Democrat. He voted with Republicans on the budget. He was part of the coalition that involved Senator Kirk Devier, Paul Lowe, uh, Ben Clark. Many hold Congressman Butterfield as a progressive. He came out in favor of the moderate Democrat in that race, said that he's friends with both Senator Erica Smith and uh, Senator Don Davis, but it certainly was a very full-throated endorsement of Senator Davis. That's right. And Former Senator Smith had the endorsement of Senator Elizabeth Warren. That was a pretty big time endorsement a few weeks back. And she also had put out a news release after this endorsement, congratulated him on that endorsement from Representative Butterfield and said, we have elections, not coronations for a reason. Kind of the same line that we're hearing out of the Governor McCrory and Mark Walker camps as it pertains to Donald Trump endorsing Ted Budd. We had our final debate this week between those Senate candidates, and again, Ted Budd decided not to show up. Pretty standard debate. If you saw the first three, you saw this one. Early voting is underway. You can now early vote, and you can same-day register if you do early vote. But if you wait until Election Day, you better be registered. This segment brought to you by the State Board of Elections. (laughs) We'll send an invoice over there. As everyone knows, I was on a trip this weekend, and so Brian had the opportunity to sit down with Joe Stewart with the Independent Insurance Agents of North Carolina. He's had a long history in North Carolina politics, so it really covers the gambit of his career. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Joe Stewart, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. It's quite an honor to be asked to be on this podcast. This is a world-famous podcast. I don't know how a simple country lobbyist like me ever rose up in the ranks enough to be considered qualified for the guesthood here, but Brian, I am appreciative of the opportunity. Well, look, we have wanted to have you on. You know, you and I 
kind of kicked off a podcast That's over right. our friend Tim Boyum right. over at Tying It Together. We were his guinea pigs. We, 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 were, we were the white mice in that particular <laughs> laboratory so they could perfect the methodology. And who did they end up debuting it with? Roy Cooper, blah, blah, blah. The governor, like the governor's more important than Brian Lewis and Joe Stewart? We were thinking, we were first. He said, yeah, we want to you know, test it out. We're doing some sound. Just want to see how the formula works. I want to tune into that first podcast. And yeah, we're, we don't come in until like three or four down the road yeah so well you know sometimes you you forget your friends and i think you know tim tim promised us that we would be the debut guest on that but i guess all things considered the governor of north carolina ranks higher than you and me i guess i guess that but we did get to join him on the lawn for the launch we were out on the capitol that's right yeah that was good so let's start off tell me about your current position what do you do right now in north carolina politics yeah i am the vice president for governmental affairs with the independent insurance agents of north carolina which is the trade association of agencies that do not work for one particular carrier these agents are able to write insurance uh, from a variety of carriers the distinction being state farm agents work for state farm they only sell state farm insurance but an independent agent can select from any number of carriers to provide coverage there are about a thousand agencies across the state that are members of our organization and that constitutes about 10,000 individual agents and so i run their uh, advocacy program, lobby on their behalf before the North Carolina General Assembly, coordinate with our national association on any federal issues that come up, and also provide general guidance in terms of how best to position the organization. Um, You know, it's a regulated industry. We have an elected insurance commissioner, so it's maintaining a relationship with the Department of Insurance and making sure that our members are engaged with their local elected legislator. Just to have a good faith conversations from time to time, just to make sure there's a general understanding among policymakers about what an independent agent does. Now you have some friends in the General Assembly that are in the insurance industry. We've had them on the podcast, uh, Senator Todd Johnson, Senator Vicki Sawyer, Representative Chris Humphrey. I imagine those are your go-tos? Yeah, absolutely. And Senator Jim Bergen and now Senator Kevin Corbin are all insurance agents. And Uh, Representative Humphrey and Senator Johnson serve as co-chairs of the requisite insurance-related committee in the House and Senate. So it's very helpful to have them in that role. They are, of course, the go-to source on any issue involving insurance among their colleagues. So Mm -hmm. it's very helpful. So this is not your first stint in politics. You have had a 35-year career in politics. You go back further than I do. Can you tell us, how did you get to this point in your career? Well, I I always joke and say, I've been around North Carolina politics so long. When I started, there was only one woman in the state seal. Is that right? (laughs) It goes back that far. It was just plenty. They added liberty after I started. No, I I started my career actually in 1988, worked on a congressional campaign in uh, in Greensboro. A fellow named Tom Gilmore was running there against Howard Coble. Um, and I sort of got the bug then, lived in D.C. for about 10 years and moved back to the state in 1996 to work for Richard Moore, who at that point had just been appointed secretary of the Department of Public Safety. We had four of the worst years of hurricane experience we'd had in 50 years. And wow. so the people in North Carolina thought it would be best if maybe I moved along from the <laughs> Department of Public Safety. But I ran Richard's campaign for state treasurer in 2000 okay. and then served as his chief deputy uh, the footnote there, the closest I ever came to being a significant part of North Carolina politics as chief deputy in the treasurer's office, I was entitled to license plate 50. So in effect, I was 49th in succession to the governor. <laughs> and when DMV called and said, you know, you're entitled to this tag, 
I said, does that mean if the governor and lieutenant governor and 47 other people die that I would be governor? And she said, yes, but you have to convince them all to die at exactly the same moment. And that's the only way you'd be governor. So that, that's as close as I've ever gotten to that. But uh, ran the reelection campaign for Richard in 2004 and then left to uh, help get started a trade association representing property and casualty insurance companies. And then uh, worked as the political director of the state chamber before running the Free Enterprise Foundation, the nonprofit, nonpartisan political research group. Um, and there I had the glorious opportunity for 12 minutes on Election Day in 2016. Fox News originated their morning broadcast from the Capitol grounds. Is that right? In downtown Raleigh. So I was on with Jenna Lee. Okay. And I walked up, of course, to the set on the Capitol grounds in my suspenders and my bow tie. And she said, <laughs> she said, I know that's what you wear every day, but this is what I would wear if I wanted to be known as a Southern political analyst. That's a, the perfect look for you. And I said, thank you. Um, and then in 2017, in October of that year, I joined the staff of the Independent Insurance Agents, okay. which is celebrating its 125th anniversary Sorry. next year. It's founding back in 1898, yeah. actually at the Briggs Hardware Building in downtown Raleigh. Is that right? Uh, in 1898, that was the place you could meet in Raleigh. It was the tallest building in Raleigh at the time. Okay. And it had meeting space, and group of agents there decided that the organization needed to be founded. And the first thing they suggested, Brian was that the state create an elected insurance commissioner's position. Right. So it goes back the, that far, the relationship between the agent community and their elected regulator. Well, let's go back to the late 1800s for a second. Let's talk about young Joe Stewart. And <laughs> <laughs> even as a kid, correct me if I'm wrong, you must have been living and breathing politics even as a young man. I really was never involved in electoral politics until I was an adult. I, I started my career on the fundraising side of things and had worked at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the development office. And that's kind of how I segued into electoral politics as a fundraiser. The one advantage I would say that gives me is as a fundraiser, you're having a lot of different conversations with a lot of different people from a lot of different lines of, of work who have a lot of different perspective on things. And it afforded me a great opportunity to learn a lot of the personal history of North Carolina politics. And Working in statewide campaigns back in the day, you really did have to go across the state and meet with people where they lived. North Carolina was a very different place then. The, the diversification and the change of the state has really been a part of what my experience in North Carolina politics has involved. And I've been witness to a lot of this, working in public office, working in state government, working on campaigns. You really do see a lot of different things about the way the state's changing, about the nature of its history, where it's come from, the differences and distinctions that are occurring as a result of that growth and that change. And I think just, uh, you know, as I say, my, my role model in life is Curious George. You know, okay. it, 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 all you really need to do to be happy is to be a good little monkey and a little curious. You know, that's, <laughs> be a nice person and always want to know more about the world around you and the people in it. And so I'm blessed to some extent to have that natural curiosity about things and it's given me a lot of great opportunities to ask people, you know, what, what is your history? What do you know? What has it been your experience here? And so to some extent, that, that maybe is the hallmark of it. And I feel like the skill set that I've learned along the way is to be at least a relatively good storyteller. Yeah. And so in, in the ways that it's important for people to get information when they feel comfortable in the way that it's being presented, it's not being forced upon them and using a lot of anecdotal examples of things. I think I've found there's a, there's a good way for people to learn more about the history of their state, of their the city or county or wherever they're from, by having it explained in a more human and more sort of interesting and dynamic way than just 
you know, facts and figures. Yeah. Did you know as a young man that you were going to go into politics? Was that your ambition when you were in high school and college? Yeah, I was one of those really annoying kids who felt pretty certain he needed to be president of the United States okay. at some point. All right. And I think I learned, I had a particular experience in college when I ran for student body president. I found out I was a terrible candidate, that that was not the part of this that I was good at. But I put together a really good campaign. And so I, I from that experience, learned people that are good at being the candidate need people that are good at the part of it I was good at. Yeah. And so that's always been the role that I've played is to help run things or be the person behind the person, making sure they have what they need. Maybe I could run for office and win at some point. And I often joke and say, <laughs> if I was to run for the North Carolina General Assembly, I would be the funniest legislator. <laughs> but I'm not entirely sure that's a robust competition. I mean, a lot of them are Jason very Sane funny. could yeah. give you a run for your money, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody to joke with me, given, given the work I've done on the insurance side, they said, you know, at some point, maybe you should consider running for insurance commissioner. And a fellow lobbying colleague said, I've got the slogan for that campaign. Joe Stewart for insurance commissioner. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Again, fits neatly on a bumper sticker. Not the best slogan. What took you over to the lobbying side from being inside over at the treasurer's office and and within state government? One of the things I found when I came in as chief deputy in the treasurer's office with Richard Moore in 2001, the previous treasurer, Harlan Boyles, had Mm -hmm. been there 24 years. And so there, there were a number of aspects of the treasurer's office, just not as a criticism, just as a natural function of a long-term incumbent that needed a modernization and, and some uh, uh, looking at a better way to run, a more water, modern way to run things. And, you know, the, the treasurer of North Carolina is sole fiduciary for the Public Employees Pension Fund. And at the time, it was $90 billion. I mean, mm-hmm. it was huge responsibility in, in terms of the office held by an elected official, a pretty clear and conspicuous demonstration of your capacity was the investment results. Right. And so yeah. we said, this is the serious thing in terms of making the case to the voters that Richard Moore needs to be treasurer. Right. And so we want to make sure we're doing this in the most modern, efficient way to do it. And so I spent a lot of time working on systems and figuring out how to explain to legislators a, a, a phenomena that is very unique in state government is an investment shop. I mean, that's really what the treasurer's office needs to be. And so talking about how the private sector handled things, it was more clear examples of what we were trying to accomplish on the private sector side. It was, it was a tough challenge and we were successful and made a lot of modernizations. And after the reelection, you know, I was thinking about what I might want to do next. And I was approached uh, that insurance companies were interested in starting a association and, and felt the need that the regulatory system was probably antiquated and there were lots of ways in which it inhibited them from providing the best possible coverage options at the best possible price for consumers. And quite frankly, it sounds kind of self-aggrandizing, but the prospects of a, of a naughty problem like that, mm-hmm. how you create a willingness to make a change to a regulatory system that is not legitimately in a crisis. I always say, you know, sure. no one's really concerned about steamship safety until the <laughs> Titanic hits the iceberg and then everybody's <laughs> for steamship safety. The prospects of having to put together a plan to address that were very appealing. In so many ways, Joe, you are the perfect lobbyist. <laughs> I don't see your politics I don't see it on display when on social media. I don't see it in the building, even in our private conversations. We have substance, substantive conversations, but we don't really get into the, the partisanship. 
you have survived in this political atmosphere and it has had lots of transitions over your career. Talk about just kind of your philosophy of engaging legislators across the aisle. You, you know, it's interesting. I always say that the best indication of what my style is reflective of is born out of the fact that I'm the youngest of three children. Okay. And I'm the youngest by six and eight years to my older brother and sister. But I always joke and say, in my, in my experience, most people in politics are either oldest children or youngest children. Mm-hmm. Oldest children have a tendency to be trailblazers and very headstrong and committed and dedicated. Youngest children have a tendency to be devious and manipulative. And both mm-hmm. of those are skill sets that are valuable in mm-hmm. politics. But part of being the youngest child of three and the younger brother to an older brother One of the things I experienced in my childhood was in most of the projects that we worked on as a family, I was the assistant because I was the little, you know, I was the smallest child. And so I wasn't able to hold the saw, but I could hold, you know, the the board. I could hold the board steady while they sawed it, that kind of thing. And I think in part, it it built into me a sense of the value proposition of being helpful, uh, of being a part of a solution to a problem in I think maybe it's a combination of my character, but also what I learned in fundraising is you've got to listen really attentively to figure out what people think about a particular problem, how they perceive what the possible solutions might be and whatever, you know, little B bias, not, not bad bias, but they're just their sense of an issue. And so what I found working in government was the ability to bring people together who didn't necessarily think they agreed on much and figure out what they could agree on and get the problem solved and move on to the next problem was incredibly rewarding to me. Mm-hmm. And so even as a lobbyist, we know this, our job is to be an advocate for our client, not necessarily the proponent of the opposition's position. But what I found is that by and large, if you're willing to spend the time to sit and listen, you will find where there are points of agreement and you can come up with something that's a solution. may not be 100% of what everybody wants, but it's 50%. And sometimes that's as much as you can get everybody to agree on. If that makes the world a slightly better place, I find that enormously satisfying. And I would say one of the great uh, expressions my father used to use, his entire career is passed now, but he always bowled. He enjoyed being in a bowling league and he always bowled. And he told me one time, the trick to bowling is to know you cannot knock down all 10 pins with the ball. But if you hit the right two in the right place, it takes out the other eight and that's a strike. So sometimes in the course of public policy, it's not figuring out the 10 problems that you're going to solve. It's the two that you can solve that are going to actually help the other eight. And that's really been the approach that I've always taken. And I think it's put me in a good position to develop a reputation as somebody willing to do the hard work to try to solve the problem to the extent that you possibly can. We work in a political environment. Politics is everywhere. Partisan politics is everywhere, but at the same time, you need to be relevant to everyone. You seem to do this so well. Uh, Thank you. I mean, that's very kind. I start uh, with the premise that everybody's really in this to do good. And and to the extent that I can help them understand better what the best good out of a particular situation is, that's something I'm committed to. It makes it sound far more noble than it is, but my experience has just been too often we forget that there are real people out there that don't know anything about the way the public policy process works who are counting on us to try to do the right things to make the world a slightly better place so that their family, their kids, their life can be okay and even better. 
Yeah. And, and that, that is all, I'm always mindful of that. Let's talk about your communications style. And you're probably picking it up if you're listening to this podcast that, Joe, you are a very funny person. And to hear you do a presentation, you and I were recently in Chapel Hill together for the Association that? Executives of North Carolina, the Trade Association of Trade Associations <laughs> only in America, Brian. And wait for it. There's a National Association of State Associations of Association Executives. So. Yeah, well, I love going to meetings of, uh, held by the Meeting Planners uh, International. <laughs> those, those are meetings about meeting planners. Yes. And we actually had global meetings industry day. We had a meeting in Charlotte. <laughs> two weeks ago. <laughs> to hear you give presentations and to talk about North Carolina politics, it is a little bit of stand-up comedy. It is a little bit of a history lesson. Well, I think, you know, I did I did dabble a little bit in stand-up comedy when I was in college. And ironically, the thing that I found that was frustrating about it was the hecklers. You know, I was there to be funny and make people laugh and have a good time, but people are combative sometimes in the crowd. I, you didn't have a Will Smith moment, no, did you? never struck. <laughs> was never struck. But, but one of the things that I, I, I wish I could say that this was anything other than just the dumb luck of genetics, I, I just have always been that kid. I, even, I was telling someone this story recently, when I was in first grade, uh, the class was going to do the play Peter Rabbit. Okay. The teacher's going through the roster of students in the class and assigning roles and responsibilities. And the teacher said, and of course, Joe Stewart will be Peter Rabbit. Of course. And, and now through the filter of many years subsequent to that, uh, what I reflect is every kid in the class is like, well, yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, who else would be Peter Rabbit but Joe Stewart? But the thing I remember on the stage in that auditorium was being completely without hesitation or fear in front of the entire school to be Peter Rabbit on the stage. And so for whatever reason, I've always had a comfort being in that environment. I will say having a sense of humor has saved my bacon more than once in the legislature. You know this. Sometimes it gets really tense. And I I did have experience. You may remember William Wainwright was a a Democratic legislator from New Bern. And at the time, he was the chair, one of the co-chairs of the House Finance Committee. Now deceased. Now deceased, passed away. But uh, I was the chief deputy of the treasurer's office. And I was invited to come over to a House Finance Committee meeting to testify on a particular bill. Uh, you know, and, and you remember Wainwright was a bishop in the Amy Zion Church and had yeah. a very ministerial way yeah. of, of handling things. And so uh, it was a relatively hasty invitation to come before the House Finance Committee. And so I walked into the committee room and it was like a scene from an old Western. You know, everybody looks, here's yeah. the gunfighter. He's coming right. up to, right. I said, Joe Stewart, chief piano Dep- stops playing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Stewart, Chief Deputy State Treasurer, and uh, Representative Wainwright says, Mr. Stewart, we appreciate you coming over at such short notice to talk about this. And I said, Bishop, I'm reminded of the words of Shakespeare. Some are born to greatness. Others achieve greatness in their lifetime. And yet others have greatness thrust upon them. <laughs> and he laughed and they laughed. And Wainwright said, well, Mr. Stewart, I'm not entirely sure that this is really an opportunity for greatness. <laughs> And I said, no, Mr. Chairman, but I feel the thrust. (laughs) (laughs) And it sort of diffused the situation. And and I was able to say the things that you have to say in those situations. It's an important piece of legislation. We're taking it very seriously, Mm -hmm. evaluating what the impact of the state of North Carolina might be. And that was what he needed me to say that. And that's what needed to be done. Well, let's go through some things that I've had some curiosities about. And I think uh, maybe even some lobbyists in the building or legislators have as well. Explain the handle Joey Two Gloves. Where does this come from? This is your Twitter handle, I believe. Right. When I first started playing golf as a kid, 
what you know, but my father only had right-handed clubs, and I was going to play with his clubs. When I play baseball growing up, I'm right-handed, but I'm left-eye dominant. Wow. And so a more powerful batting position was left. So I was able to switch hit. I was not a strong right-handed batter, but I'd throw right and bat left. And so when I started to play golf as a kid, a left-handed grip on a right-handed club was just a more logical way for me to hold the club. And to this day, I play cross-handed, which I say is not recommended, but it's a very interesting conversation piece. Yeah. And I'm convinced when I die and they do the autopsy, they'll look at my wrists and go, oh my God, what was he doing? (laughs) It's all torn up in here. This is awful. (laughs) But as a result of that, uh, uh, and I'm a little bit of a sweaty guy, and so I got in the habit of playing with two gloves. Okay. And use rain gloves now as a way to to deal with it. It's just a, it was a, just a way to make sure I was holding onto the club. You know, I'm holding the club backwards. Okay. And so having two gloves was important just to maintain the grip on the, so it just got to be, there is a professional golfer. I can't think of his last name right now, but he went by, he wore two gloves. They called him Tommy two gloves. And so okay. it just sort of, he, he, I don't believe was cross-handed, but that that's the story. I've gotten a lot of questions about this. When we see you on television, if I see you down at the general assembly, uh, no coat, suspenders and of course your signature bow tie right did i i mention in the golf story that i'm a sweaty guy that's the jacket part <laughs> okay <laughs> and the suspenders really give it more of a finished look since i'm not wearing a jacket okay. and that was part of it and i'm short-waisted so suspenders were a little easier to make make the fashion statement with it that a belt would not the funny story about bow ties is i in my career in state government i always wore long ties and um you know, you, you know this. You pick a pick a tie or spill soup on it or something. If you spill soup on a bow tie, something really bad has happened. <laughs> right. Really bad, really bad situation for soup to somehow get on your bow tie. Yeah. Um, but it was also when I started at the Free Enterprise Foundation, was doing presentations for groups. I found it was easier to since a lot of people didn't know who I was. I say I'd be the guy in the bow tie, and it was kind of unusual. Okay. The, the thing that I found is the number of men that say to me, "Gosh, I wish I could wear bow ties, but I can't figure out the knot." Yeah. And I'm like, it's the same knot as a shoelace. It's I mean, you've same. done this knot a million times yeah. in your life. Yeah. But the other one is uh, my wife won't let me wear bow ties. I'm like, <laughs> I didn't know there was a. <laughs> But somebody pointed out the character in the Andy Griffith show, Howard Sprague. Yeah. They said, yeah, they're, they're afraid that your husband, their husbands will look like Howard Sprague because he always wore bow ties. Uh, Howard Sprague was a dapper man. Yeah. We discovered this when we were on Tim's podcast that we had something uh, in common that we did. And that is here at our office, pre-pandemic, we used to host a Do Politics Better dinners. We would invite legislators and other lobbyists, and we'd just kind of sit around, have conversation. We wouldn't talk about it. We wouldn't take photographs, wouldn't take video. And it was just a, a way for us to learn about legislators and other folks in state government. And then you were telling me, and, and I have had the honor of attending, your interesting persons dinner <laughs> that you host every once in a while. These are great events, but can you talk a little bit about the genesis of this and, and what you're trying to achieve? It goes back to this. I was the chair of the board for the Association Executives of North Carolina. In the night before our board meetings, I would host a dinner and bring in a speaker uh, to talk about some subject that I thought was relevant to the nature of leadership. And the, the one that really um, 
was most meaningful, I had the imam from the mosque of Raleigh come and talk about the nature of leadership as it is discussed in the Quran, in the Islamic faith. How do they feel about leadership from a faith basis? He talked about the nature in the, in the holy text for Islam, as well as Christianity and, Ju- and Judaism, the image of a shepherd, and that it is not, the sheep are not impressed okay. that you're the shepherd. <laughs> it's the responsibility of leadership that the sheep are most interested in, that God is not hoping that in your leadership role that you become impressed with yourself, that you provide serious and deliberative leadership to the people for whom you have responsibility. Okay. And it made me realize that in my life, I had encountered all of these people, friends as well as professional colleagues, that, that had these kind of great insights into life and that I knew them and maybe they didn't all know each other. And right. so the thought came to me, and I believe very strongly, there's something about a meal that's very humanizing. I mean, yeah. All through human history, when people sit down together and share a meal, it creates a kind of a level playing field in terms of their willingness to discuss and it sort of makes us human. And so I organized uh, one of these and just invited a bunch of people that I found interesting for Mm -hmm. one reason or another. It it is a great opportunity and it's people from all lines of work. It's not just people in politics and government, but I always go into these dinners prepared to throw out a topic that we can talk about. I've never had to do it. It's just proof that organically, if people who have some interesting perspective on life come together just naturally the conversations flow and it's always been so rewarding. I feel a little selfish, like this is entirely to my benefit, but I have witnessed this and I've been doing it several years now. Some friendships have been born out of connections that two people who didn't know each other before the dinner make. And that's enormously rewarding to me. Joe, if we gave you a magic wand and you could fix something in our politics, Joe Stewart waves it and it's done. What would that one thing be? The magic wand that I would wave is what we just described. If people would take some time to be with each other in person again, I, you know, one of the greatest things that could happen in North Carolina would be if legislators would agree to go spend the weekend in a other legislator's <laughs> district, yeah. get to know, because they come to Raleigh to represent the people that the district contains and have voted them in. And that may be very different than the constituency of another legislator And so getting to know each other a little better, I think, would be helpful. More opportunities for people of different opinions to sit down and actually have conversations. Some part of what the Internet's made possible is the dehumanization of communication. I have a friend whose stepdaughter was writing him some very nasty emails. He finally printed one out and made her read it out loud to him, and she burst into tears. She said, yeah. I, I had no idea how this sounded. Yeah. You know, it was flat, two-dimensional communications, you know, yeah. not seeing the impact on the other person. One thing I would love to do is to organize a tour of going to all of those great little restaurants in North Carolina that are synonymous with politics, where the local politicos go and sit down yeah. and have breakfast and chat about stuff. Take a diverse group of legislators around the state and sort of recreate that we're enjoying a meal together and we're trying to figure out what we can agree to. Yeah. And that, that's the one thing that I think is missing a little bit from our politics. There's, there's certainly an atmosphere where elected officials in particular have to be very mindful of the fact it can be pointed to as some act of disloyalty if they're seen being too friendly with people of the other party. And I think both parties are guilty of that to some extent. Yeah. But if we, if we can find a way to, truly harness the nature of human communication, the connection that we have to each other as people. 
the, the one thing we know is every person gets wet in the rain. <laughs> if we sort of start, we sort of start there and say, you know what? We have at least that in common. Sure. We all get wet in the rain. In my experience throughout my career, people come into a situation convinced there's nothing they can agree on. Inevitably, there's at least one thing they find mm-hmm. that they could agree on. And so opportunities to promote that, that, that would be my one thing. Well, Joe Stewart, I appreciate everything you have done in your career, everything you are doing now for North Carolina politics. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Brian, it's been my privilege. Thank you. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. As you can tell from this conversation, Joe Stewart is really a fun guy to hang out with. He just has such a long history in North Carolina, and I'm so intrigued by him because this is a guy who has had staying power throughout many of the transitions. Typical podcast conversation, we talk We have our conversation, we record it, we turn off the mixer, and we keep on talking. It's as if we could have kept the microphones going uh, for about an hour after our conversation, but really appreciate him spending the afternoon with me last Friday. And Sky, I'm really sorry you missed the interview. Tweet of the week. This week's tweet of the week has to be around Elon Musk buying Twitter. We had no other option. It's big news. And this tweet comes from Dave Smith. I don't know him. He's at Red Letter Dave. I believe he works for Business Insider. And he tweeted, this exchange continues to haunt me. Elon Musk tweeted, December 21st, 2017. I love Twitter. Dave Smith said, you should buy it then. And Elon Musk said, how much is it? He just got it for like $54 a share or something like that. Yeah, I've been seeing all of the hot takes on Twitter. And I mean, they are entertaining. There's a lot of doomsday predictions out there. I mean, he says that he's a free speech absolutist, right? Yeah, he said that I hope that my biggest critics stay on Twitter because it's free speech. All right, well, we'll see what happens to Twitter. In the meantime, we'll continue to tweet every day. And get a lot of our news from Twitter. I find Twitter to be a great place to get news and information, notwithstanding the bots out there that seem to just have something all the time stirring up. So, you know, one of the interesting things is, you know, I work a lot with college students. So they're a younger generation than me. And they're all like, why would anybody ever use Twitter? But we use Twitter all the time. In fact, I would say borders on an addiction checking Twitter, being on Twitter, seeing any tweets from reporters, things like that. And I always say like, oh, well, it's the best place to get political news. And they're like, yeah, I'm not interested in that. Like I just have Instagram and TikTok and TikTok tells me what I need to know. So I do think that it, it, it may be something that will age out in the future. But as of right now, it is your fastest news source for political news. And that's just a fact. All right, Sky, you know what's coming. A lot of folks. Mother's Day. 
Father's Day is coming. But a lot of folks are curious as to how your camping, or as you call it, glamping trip went last weekend. What I would say is that if you don't like camping, I would not recommend this to you. (laughs) I would not recommend it to me. Okay. However, I did survive. I am here. So points for that. Uh Uh-huh. However, they were not joking about the lack of service there. (laughs) I was thinking it was going to be spotty. I had in my head it wouldn't be as bad as it was. How many times did you pick up your phone thinking, you know, I'm going to get on the Wi-Fi or I'm going to text someone and you noticed no bars, nothing? Everybody has been in that situation, you know, a few years back. When you're on a plane, you have no service. You can't even text. Now you can pretty much text on any flight. You can't text. You have no internet, nothing, right? Mm -hmm. And you're just staring at your phone like, what am I going to do? That was the feeling for 48 hours. Well, I hope you don't mind me sharing this. It's noticeable today that we are standing up as we record the podcast. A a little tweak in your back from your glamping trip. That's right. Also would not recommend the sleeping situation there. (laughs) I woke up with a really sore back on Saturday, kind of got increasingly worse and had to go to the doctor. Uh, when you got back on Monday. Yep. Yeah. Aside from the inconveniences, you saw beautiful McDowell County. That's right. So- we we went hiking. We did a lot of outdoorsy stuff, and it was a good time. But I would say it, it just depends on what you want your experience to be. If you're outdoorsy, you like camping, go. Great area. <laughs> if maybe like you like a bed, Baby, don't go there. Do you want to take a stab at rating your trip? Because you are really big into rating things. If you go out to dinner with Sky, she'll say, okay, rate your food. If you go on a trip, she'll say, okay, rate this trip. I'm asking you, do you, do you want to give it a, a rating? I would prefer not to give it a rating. <laughs> I would say that um, it's a pretty area. I uh-huh. love my friends. And that's actually all I would say. Yeah. Well, I am so glad you're back. Glad you survived. I hope your back feels better. Yeah, me too. (laughs) In other news, your house is a mess. My house is a mess. Yeah. This week we are having... To be fair, it's always a mess according to your wife and the (laughs) videos that she sends me. (laughs) Right. We're going through a little renovation Uh project at the house really made our living conditions kind of nomadic this week. We are ending the week at Carolina Beach, and you're joining us as well because we happen to have a client that is In a real bed. Yeah, yeah. Not with me, though, but at our house. (laughs) But a dog usually sleeps with me at your place. A dog, yes. Dog sleeps with you, but we're in Carolina Beach. One, I have to get out of the house my wife and I do along with the dogs but then you and I are visiting with some firefighters who are having an executive board meeting at Carolina Beach so it's going to be fun a little bit of hanging out at the beach a lot of getting work done and then meeting with the firefighters as always we're so appreciative of everyone listening commenting with us even if you're making fun of me for my inability to camp this weekend i still appreciate 
you listening. As we get closer and closer to primaries, you're probably going to see more and more political news, political ads. And when you're talking about them with other people, remember to do politics better. 